0: that mean, but then he says, but he did, and we have evidence of that, and he talks a little bit about the nature of resurrection and what it means to to have, in the same way that sin infected humanity, then resurrection can actually redeem humanity. Now we come to verse 29, and we will be looking at verses 29 through 34. Verse 29 is probably the most difficult passage in the New Testament to interpret. There, I don't know of another passage of the Bible that has more disagreement as far as what it actually means than this one, the, pa- the verse about the baptism for the dead. The only ones who aren't confused about it are the Mormons. They know exactly what it means, and they're wrong. So, um, but I've seen... People say there are over 400 possible interpretations, so this morning we will look at all those. (laughs) No, we'll just go through it quickly, but let's read these verses. Beginning with verse 29, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Well, this whole issue of baptism for the dead, it's only referred to here, nowhere else in Scripture. Not only that, in church history we don't have that there was any practice of baptism for the dead. We tend to read this and take the interpretation that we've heard from the the Mormons, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they take from this passage and teach that you can be baptized on behalf of someone who's already died, and therefore they can get salvation, get their own planet and everything eventually because you were baptized for them. Now, the Mormons are really into genealogies. In fact, if you ever want to study your roots and find out who your ancestors are, you won't study very long without running into uh, the Mormons because they have collected a vast amount of genealogical data. I mean, most people wouldn't have any clue who their ancestors were if it were not for all of the research of the Mormon church. And it's nice that they do it. There's nothing wrong with doing that. And, and to their credit, they're very generous in sharing their information. They don't say, you know, you have to be a Mormon to use our database. They, they let everyone use it and that's fine. But the reason why they do that is because they believe that if you go back and find ancestors that you didn't know existed, you can get baptized on their behalf and then they will get saved by you being baptized for them. Of course, baptism doesn't save us Anyway, it's you know we don't believe in baptismal regeneration at all, but especially to get baptized for someone else is completely contrary to Scripture and it's totally illogical. But that's the idea that they've come up with, and this is the verse they use to support it. And again, they're wrong. Um, historically, though, it's hard to say what in the world was Paul talking about. It's easy to say what he wasn't talking about, but then we need to come up with our own version of what was he saying, and that's, and that's more difficult because, again, there's no one in the early church who interprets this. The one thing we know is they certainly didn't have the practice in the early church of being baptized for other people on behalf of other people. There is one reference uh, to it. There's a guy named Marcion in the second century who was, a, who was a Gnostic heretic, and he taught that you could get baptized for someone else who was dead, but the church branded it as heresy, along with just about everything else Marcion taught as well. But we look at it and go, wow, what is what is this talking about? Now, some of the ideas, there are some people who have proposed that this was a weird, kooky practice that some of them were doing in Corinth, and, and Paul was just using their own practice and saying, if you don't believe in resurrection, even this goofy thing that you're doing, baptizing for the dead, wouldn't make sense. And so using a, an improper practice as support for resurrection. Problem with that is we don't have any reference to th- that they were doing something like this other than just this verse. And certainly Paul, when he wrote this book of 1 Corinthians, it was to correct bad teaching. If they were doing something like that, he certainly would have addressed it. And if it was something that was good to do, he certainly would have condoned them for it and it would have been taught on other places. So I think we have to eliminate that as a possibility. There are some people who teach that There were some other people that were having this practice. But again, if they aren't believers, it doesn't prove anything. So you can't figure out why Paul would use it as an evidence or an argument for resurrection. It also doesn't fit in with the context. There are some people who have suggested that the dead is actually referring to Jesus himself. Being baptized for the dead would be being baptized in the name of Jesus. In the context, he was talking about the significance of Jesus' death and how if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he's still dead, and so on. And so in that case, they would say, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead or in the name of Jesus? That if the dead don't rise, if Jesus is still dead, then why are you baptizing someone in the name of someone who's still dead? What good does it do? Um, That's kind of a stretch, Um, mainly because the when it when it talks about those who are baptized for the dead it's it's in the plural not in the singular so the dead is plural so it's dead ones and so then some people have said well then it includes everyone who followed Jesus he was the first fruits and so everyone who's died following him kind of together as us being baptized in his name and in connection with all of those but Again, I I think that's kind of pushing it. Um, A couple of things that might help. (coughs) For one thing, baptism doesn't always just refer to the act of immersing people in water. For instance, remember over in Matthew chapter 20, James and John's mother came to Jesus and said, Hey, can my boys sit at your right and left hand in the kingdom? And Jesus said to her, You know, you don't know what you're asking. And then he looked at James and John and said, do you guys, can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? He was referring to his suffering and his death, a baptism by fire, if you will. And they said, yes, we can. And he said, prophetically, Yeah, you're right. You will be baptized with the baptism that I'll be baptized with. You're going to be martyred yourselves, but it's not for me to choose who can sit at the right and left hand. So if it's a reference to baptism in that sense, then he could be referring to people who had been martyred. And the idea of why would you be martyred and why would we, you know, esteem these people who gave their life for nothing? if they don't have a resurrection from the dead. We're getting closer because that fits with the context as, as, we, you know, as you continue to read where Paul says talks about his jeopardy and the danger and all that he has to endure and things like that. So that could be something to do with it. It also could just have a reference to baptism in general. Oh, another thing that that you'll sometimes hear people say. Another tricky thing about it is baptism for the dead. The word "for" would not be the usual word that means on behalf of the dead, and it and it's not the normal word for "for" or the word for "instead of," which would be "anti." But it's the word "huper," which means above and beyond. We talk about hyper speed; it's a speed that kicks it up another notch, and so it's. It's being baptized. Who pair the dead? Now, so some people even said that physically in the early church, perhaps they would go to the graves of the martyrs and then would baptize new believers above who pair the graves of the martyrs because they were taking the place of the martyrs. They were inspired by the faith of the martyrs and so on. Um, that's not too bad, but we have no real historical reference that they actually did such a thing. The other thing, and I'm always looking for the simplest explanation if possible. Remember, in baptism, what's, what's taught is that when we are baptized, when we are immersed, when we go down into the water, we are buried with Jesus in baptism. It's said that we are identifying with his death, according to Paul, when we are baptized. And when we raise up out of the water, we're identifying, speaking of his resurrection. So this could just be as simple as saying that, hey, when you're baptized, you're saying, I'm crucified with Christ. You're saying, I'm risen again with him. So how in the world does baptism even mean anything if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, and if we won't rise from the dead someday. So that's enough to confuse you on it. You can solve it for yourself during the week. But it's his first thing that he's saying in the flow of this discussion to say, look, baptism or martyrdom or suffering, however you want to look at it, it doesn't make sense to bring people into a religion that you get killed for joining if there's no resurrection. Why in the world would you want more people to get saved if they're not going to get raised from the dead? Why would you want to go, hey, come down here and get baptized, and, and then they'll kill you for it? It just, he's going, the meaning of our faith connects so strongly with resurrection, it just wouldn't be worth it. In other words, to even be baptized or to even be initiated into Christianity because it's a dangerous faith. But now, regardless of what that verse means, it's important to tie it in with the context here. And what he's saying in these verses is there are two different ways to look at life. There are two different ways by which you can live your life. One way is to live your life the way most people do, motivated by trying to avoid pain at all costs. And the other way to potentially live your life is to live your life with the awareness that no matter how much pain there is in this life, if I am following after Jesus Christ and doing what he tells me to do, I know that there's a resurrection. And so instead of living my life motivated by what hurts or doesn't hurt, It's living my life by the awareness of resurrection. So again, he says, why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? After referring to they, so it's not whoever's the baptism for the dead, it's somebody other than us, because he's been saying us and we and sometimes you, and then he says they when it comes to them. So other than that category, he says, man, why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? Why are we endangering ourselves if there's no resurrection? And then he says, I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus. In other words, you know, I'm proud of what God has done in your lives and you are the reason why I'm proud and why I'm happy and I'm boasting. I'm, I, I love seeing what God has done in your life. On that same basis, I'm telling you, I die daily. If in the manner of men, he says, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead don't rise? Now, talking about him being at Ephesus fighting with beasts, um, there are some people who take this and say, Paul must have been in Ephesus put into an arena and made to contend with the lions or wild animals. It was something that they would do there sometimes. And, So some people would take on the basis of this verse and say that happened to Paul and somehow he escaped it. It may have, but it's hard to imagine that he wouldn't have mentioned it, like especially in 2 Corinthians when he's going down the list of everything that he has suffered. It's hard to believe that Luke wouldn't have mentioned it in in the book of Acts when he talks about being at Ephesus. So I tend to doubt that he actually literally met beasts, he was probably referring to the people who, well, while Paul was at Ephesus, people got upset, and, uh, and all the followers of Diana, the goddess Diana, rioted there in Ephesus, and they barely escaped with their lives. So that may be what he was referring to. At any rate, his point is, why in the world am I in this battle that I'm in if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? But then now he says... If the dead don't rise, then we ought to live a different way. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Quoting in Isaiah, where the children of Israel, when they realized that they were going to go into captivity, they said, we might as well just have a party, because we're dead anyway. Paul said, if there's no resurrection, that's the way I would live. And then, as he says, don't be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Now, that's a good thought, and we always, in the King James, it's bad company corrupts good morals, and that's a good principle, but it's hard to see how it fits in here. But it's important to understand that word for company there, that, that word for you know what we would describe as associations or something like that, the word doesn't just mean who you're associated with, but it's specifically talking about who you're talking to, who you're listening to who is teaching you? It's the Greek word homilis, which from which we get the word homiletics, which is the study of how to preach. Some uh, churches call their sermons the homily. It comes from this same word. And what he is saying is, who you listen to, who is teaching you, has a profound effect on the way you live, on your own morality, on your own way of life. And then warning them, awake to righteousness, and don't sin, for some don't have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. So again, we see here two complete ways of looking at life. Now the one, pain avoidance, we know well. Almost everything that motivates us from the earliest times in our life has to do with avoiding pain. We know this. When we discipline children, we're trying to protect them from things that hurt. And sometimes in communicating that to them, we do something that hurts in order for them to get the idea, oh, I don't want to do that because it's going to hurt. And mostly what everyone in this world wants to do is make it not hurt so much. And that's a problem because this world does hurt. Life is a very painful experience. And, and so the fact that since the world fell, as we talked about last week with Adam, ever since then, there's something wrong with us and among us and in this world, and pain is there. And so our, our main motivation often, and for most people in this world, even Christians, their main motivation is, how can I avoid pain? How can I make the hurting stop? Now, the problem is, often the things that will help you to relieve the pain are also things that God calls sin. They're also things that God forbids, because though they may temporarily stop the pain, yet they may lead to permanently much worse circumstances and much worse pain later on. And as Paul says, there are some who don't have the knowledge of God. And so their attitude is described by his statement, come on, let's eat and drink. We're going to die tomorrow. We don't have much life left. Now, most people, the reason they sin is because they want the hurt to go away. You know, you're going through your life, and it's just not, it's difficult it always is. But maybe you find yourself in a situation where, man, you just, you're, you're craving for a decent relationship. You're just wanting someone to be close to who understands you and accepts you the way you are. And you understand them and you want that kind of a relationship. But it just seems like all the people in your lives don't meet that need. Maybe you even get married, and yet there's this loneliness within your marital relationship. There's something between you, and it just hurts to think about relationship. And so in the world, it's easy. They would say, well, if your marriage hurts, end it. Forget it. Try again. Maybe somebody else will satisfy your needs that this person isn't able to satisfy or chooses not to satisfy. The world would say to a single person who's who's alone and who's suffering because of that, the world would say, look, just find a relationship however you have to get it. You know, a bad relationship is better than no relationship at all. So if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. Just go find somebody and just... Accept that as here's your fix. And so people do what God's word commands them not to do and get into relationships that God says you shouldn't do it. Why do they do it? Because it might make the pain go away, at least for a little while. You start thinking about your life. You start getting depressed. You start struggling with the realities of a fallen world. And you look for a solution and, hey, a bottle might do it for a little while. You know, take another drink and, and you deaden yourself to the pain. Take those, those pain kills or killers or take those other drugs and, and it'll give you some relief from the stress and the strain and the struggles of this world. And, and it's why these are such multi-billion dollar industries because everyone's looking for a way to get out of the pain. But the problem is so often, number one, the ways that people are proposing to escape the pain will end up bringing more damage. They are violations against what God's word says. And so you might feel good for a little while, but you're going to feel a whole lot worse later on. And the pain and the consequences of your sin is going to end up being much more painful than the the sin that you started committing in the first place because of the pain that you had. It just gets worse. But God calls us to do things His way. The trouble is, He doesn't say, if you do it my way, the pain will stop. And yet, sad to say, some people come to Jesus and believe, I want to become a Christian so I can escape my pain. I want to become a Christian so I can finally feel better. Well, those of us who have become Christians recognize pretty quickly after that, that what Jesus said is much more to the point. He said, if you want to come after me, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. He didn't mean put a little cross necklace on. A cross was something that would kill you. He said, get ready to die. And Paul had lived that life. He had a pretty comfortable life before. He was doing well, but after coming to Jesus, all the stuff that happened to him. In fact, turn over to 2 Corinthians 11, and we'll see some of the treatment that he underwent that that he was alluding to possibly here. Paul was talking about people who were claiming that he was sort of a second-class citizen and not much of a minister. And in verse 23 of 2 Corinthians 11 He said, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool, I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received forty stripes minus one. So five times they took him and whipped him with a with a whip that had cords with shards of glass and scraps of metal in it, ripping the skin off his back. 39 times, the maximum time allowed by law. He goes, yeah, they did it to me five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been out and stuck in the ocean. In journeys often, in perils of waters, perils of robbers, perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils of the city, in perils of the wilderness, perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things that come upon me daily, like my deep concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to stumble and I don't burn with indignation? He said, If I'm going to boast, I'll boast in that. What a life! Come to Jesus and get beaten and stoned. Come to him and your life will get more and more painful. Come to him and pour yourself out as a a, just a, a martyr. The word martyr, by the way, is a word that means witness, literally. And it came to refer to people who died for their faith, because if you witnessed in those days, you usually would die for your faith. Now, Do you see how different this is than the mentality of the world? The world says, do whatever you have to do to make the pain stop. Now, Christianity does not say, do whatever you have to do to make it hurt more. There are some people who think that Christianity is like being a masochist. There are people who go out and and preach in an offensive way on purpose because people really give them a hard time, and then they feel like they're suffering for Christ, That's certainly not what the Bible teaches. But what the Bible teaches is, as a believer, you do what God tells you to do. You go where he calls you to go. And you do not consider whether or not it's going to hurt when you decide what God's will is. And yet the world, and as he warns them, don't be deceived. Because there are people who really don't know God, who have the idea that you can follow God and pursue pleasure and, and, and pain avoidance. And this is something that, of course, it sells well. It does still to this day. Do you see how different Paul's message is than the common message that we hear? If you analyze most of what you hear that's out in the world today in the name of Christianity, it's all about how Jesus can make your life better. It's all about how, boy, it hurt really bad, and then you come to Jesus, and it just doesn't hurt anymore. And, you know, when you follow Him, He can get you out of debt. He can cause you to have a happy marriage. He can make your kids perfect. He can cause your job to go better. And that's the message, the deceived message, that's making people feel like, hey, you know, don't worry, it's going to get better, it's going to be great. The Bible promises nothing of the sort. The Bible promises life is going to hurt. And until we understand that, but recognize how important resurrection is in the whole equation, then we're going to be befuddled in life. We're going to, you know, you're going to be at work and it's not going well. Business is going in the tank. And first you're going to think, I must be doing something wrong because I'm not seeing God's blessing on my business. How do you think Paul felt about his business? Everywhere he went, they were killing him, trying to kill him for him doing his business. And there'd be a lot of people who would put their arm around him and go, Paul, if you just preach a little friendlier message, if you would just soft pedal it a little bit, talk about the warmth and the, and the energy that comes from being a Christian. Make it sound like it's almost like the other religions, just slightly a different twist, but we all have our own faith. Paul, if you weren't so dogmatic, they wouldn't stone you, you know? And I'm sure he got that kind of advice all the time. But understand from this passage that following Jesus Christ means you're willing to suffer. Now, it sounds like a bad deal because you go, I don't like pain. And so if there's something I can do to make my business more successful, I want to do it. Well, what are you willing to compromise in order for that to happen? Because the definition of sin, really, one definition would be to take a shortcut from God's will in order to do what's going to feel good right now. So if you just cheat a little bit, business will be much better. If you learn to be a good liar, you can probably improve your marriage. You know, if you can learn how to con your kids, you could probably make them be better than they are. But is that what God calls us to do? The problem with all of this pain avoidance that we spend our lives perfecting, it ultimately brings much greater pain in the long run. Because every shortcut causes you to come up short. You know, yeah, it's true that rather than for somebody to tell you, Hey, I know you feel lousy. I know you feel like you're hurting and lonely. I know you feel hopeless. You know, that's life. Well, thanks. I'd rather just take a drink. But how do you feel when you find out where that drink gets you, where that pain avoidance ultimately takes you? And the truth is, it's not a choice between hurting or not hurting. That's not an option. Not hurting is not an option. Howard Hughes... He had everything he could possibly want, and he was absolutely miserable. He was completely paranoid of catching diseases, so he wouldn't let people into his house. He, he bolted up most of the doors of his house, lived in a small area. He wouldn't even wear shoes. He wore Kleenex boxes over his feet. And he, did, he, he lived this weird existence, and then when he died, they did an autopsy on his body, and he had practically every disease known to mankind. And he lived his life trying to not be sick. Sorry, that's this world, and that's the way it happens. So really, pain avoidance isn't an option. The option that the world gives you is a delay of pain. I'll make it hurt less right now, but it's going to hurt more later. But the fact is, if there's one thing that any student of life understands is life hurts. Plain and simple and honest. However... The difference is, how long does the pain last? And when we come to understand the power of the resurrection, then we realize that not only can there be a purpose to my pain, a purpose that makes it really worthwhile, but also I can live my life now in a way that will make eternity glorious. As I follow Jesus Christ, I guarantee that when I rise from the dead, When I finally see his face and he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant, I am not going to be thinking of my pain any longer. He will wipe away every tear. He'll touch me. Everything will be fine. When we see Jesus, everything will be fine. There is an old song that talked about that when we see Christ, you know, that once we see his face, all sorrow, he's going to erase because the perspective of eternity causes us to see the pain of this life for what it is, just a temporary annoyance. You know, I've had a couple times I've had to go to the doctor and get, get fluid drained from my knee. And the way they do it is they have a huge syringe, a needle about a foot long, and and it's like an eighth of an inch thick, huge needle. And I remember the first time I did it, I, I sat there and and the doctor gets this needle out, and, and I said, is this going to hurt? He goes, oh, yeah. <laughs> and he said, he said, in fact, you might want to lay down. And I said, no, I'll be fine. I'll sit up. <laughs> and then he stuck it in, and I was just like, I think I'll lay down. <laughs> but I could have struggled against it. I could have fought him and slapped it around. It just would have hurt a lot more, and he'd have to do it again. I could have jumped off the table and hobbled out of the room and had a bad knee like that for the rest of my life. Or I can say, okay, I guess I can accept that this pain has some good attached to it, that this pain is going to be ultimately worth it. And so, as Paul's saying here, there's two ways you can live. But don't be deceived, because that life that avoids pain... That life that decides, I'm going to take the easy way. That life that looks for every escape possible from any sort of discomfort is a life that's very deceiving ultimately. And he said, I'm speaking this to your shame. You know that Jesus died and rose from the dead. You know that life is temporary, that eternity is permanent. And I'm ashamed of you because you are making life decisions based on temporal pain when you know there's an eternity. And there are so many times when I know that we could pile up treasures in heaven if we were willing to hurt, but instead we go, no, I don't want to hurt. And so then we hurt anyway, and we get nothing for it. There's nothing eternal that will matter. To decide God's will for your life based on whether or not it hurts, whether or not it's comfortable, is short-sighted and foolish. And it's deceptive. But it's the dominant position out there. There's a broad road that leads to destruction. There's a narrow road, a lonely road, that leads to eternal life. And we have the choice which road we're going to travel on. So you hear an opportunity, oh, they're doing an outreach down in Mexico. You go, wow, that'd be cool to go minister in Mexico. And then somebody at your work tells you, Mexico? Haven't you? Did you hear about the shootout in Tijuana recently? 35 people were shot. You realize that two people every day are kidnapped in Tijuana alone? And you start going, maybe God isn't calling me to Mexico. Maybe I'll just go have lunch at Del Taco and pray for the people who are working there and call it a day. But is that the way you want to live your life? Being afraid of everything? Paul is telling these people, suck it up. Wake up. Do the right thing, even if it's dangerous, even if it hurts. And when eternity's perspective is seen, you'll be so glad you did, and it'll make sense. But he would say, if there's no resurrection, sure, I'll party with the best of them. But I know there is a resurrection. And as a result, I am living my life under excruciating pain that I I hate, just as Jesus despised the pain when he died on the cross for us. But for the joy that was set before him, he endured the pain. And Paul says, because of the results that I know that will last forever. Because maybe one time I get stoned, but it gives me a chance to bring five people into eternity. It's a great deal. I wouldn't want to send people to hell so I can be comfortable. And then ultimately, how comfortable is it anyway? And so here, two ways to go. The path of the martyr. The path of the person who says... I want to do what God tells me to do, and if it hurts, I'm not going to act like I'm surprised. I'm not going to act like some strange thing is happening to me because life hurts. He told me it would hurt. I'm going to do what's right, because I know the worst thing it'll do is kill me, and then to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. How do you think, you know, Lazarus, he was dead for three days, and Jesus brought him back from the dead. And that made a tough witness. And so it said that the Jews wanted to kill Lazarus. But how do you kill a guy who's already been dead once? How do you threaten him? You go to him and go, Lazarus, we're going to kill you. He'd be like, yeah, I've been there, done that. (laughs) Seems like that's the perspective Paul had. A guy who said, I am crucified with Christ Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The eternal perspective. The perspective of one who says, I've already said it's okay for me to hurt. I've already said I will accept a life of loneliness if it's necessary. I will accept a life of pain if necessary. You might as well, because that's what life is, and that's what it does. But do you want to hurt for nothing, or do you want to hurt for eternity? Paul made that choice. And he said to these believers, don't be deceived. There's a bunch of voices out there that'll tell you something different. But I'm telling you the truth. Do what God calls you to do, expecting it to hurt. And not whining every time you're uncomfortable. And not looking for a way out every time something isn't going your way. Live for eternity. Live for heaven. I'm, I'm just passing through this life. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. That's what I want to live for. Because if life hurts either way, man, I want eternity to be really good. I want heaven to be glorious. I want treasures to be there. I want to take as many people there as I can. That's, that's Paul's heart. And that will be ours if we're wise. To see the meaning in our pain. To know that, yeah, I'm hurting because I'm doing the right thing. But God promises he's going to make it up for me. He's going to restore it all, bless me in an amazing way. Let's pray. Lord, it's really no shock to us to discover that life hurts. We all figured that out when we were younger. And many of us, most of us, probably have exerted a ton of energy to try to make the pain go away. We've invested money and effort. We've made compromises. We've cheated and taken shortcuts. We've gotten involved in relationships that aren't of you. Also, that we can make the pain go away. Lord, help us today to be wiser, to wake up, and to decide that instead of a phony avoidance of pain, what we want to opt for is significance. That pain will be for a purpose. So, Lord, make your will clear to us and give us the guts to do it. Give us the courage and the foresight to realize that trading your will for anything else is a dumb deal. God, help us to have the courage to walk with you and to take the pain because of the gain that we know will come in eternity in the resurrection. Thank you for the reality of your resurrection that you showed us the day will come when the pain will stop. And when we can touch each other's wounds and they won't hurt, they will be trophies of all that we suffered and now we'll never suffer through again. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.